Witness Docs from Stitcher. Good morning, Busa. Good morning, Ujapa. Good morning, Mubi. Good morning, Ujapa. Those are fine yams you have there. This is me in my first grade play, and the yams I'm talking about are sweet potatoes. I'm playing a turtle, a large, child-sized, curly-haired, talking turtle. But not for you, Ijapa. True, I have nothing to trade for food or no money to buy any. Surely, there is no harm in admiring and imagining how good your yams taste. Ever since I can remember, I have loved being up on a stage in front of people. Performing, it just feels right to me. Having everyone's eyes on me, smiling or laughing, I would do little dance routines for my family. I put on my windbreaker and I turn on every fan in the house and I would do my best MJ. I was the ultimate class clown and the host of all the talent shows. I was also into magic. I have three cups right here. Mm-hmm. Happy? Wow. I had a spark in me. So I auditioned for a performing arts high school in New York. Shout out to my school, Talent Unlimited, NYC. I started in plays like The Crucible, The Exonerated, Anna in the Tropics. That spark turned into a full-on fire. I mean, I'm a professional actor now, living and working in Hollywood. But I've had moments where it was really hard to keep that spark alive in me. Moments where I thought, do I really belong in this industry? Am I just a phony? Do I actually have what it takes? One big sobering moment came right after high school. I had spent four years working on my craft, and I thought it was pretty good. Shit, I thought it was the best. So I auditioned for the preeminent theater program in the world, Juilliard. The place that trained people like Robin Williams, Viola Davis, and Adam Driver. I thought there was no way I couldn't get in. But I didn't get in. And all of a sudden, I went from an uber-confident kid with big dreams to living with my parents in Miami and working as a personal trainer on South Beach. I had a great tan but no spark. I was 18 years old and a family friend, someone I referred to as my second mother, shout out Ellie, saw the aimless state I was in. So she offered to connect me with this guy who had a gift for mentoring young people. We got in touch and this man literally flew me to New York where I met him in his office. His name was Emiro Fiorentino. Meeting with Christopher Rivas on Saturday, September 16th, 2000. Imera recorded our conversation because he thought I might want to hear it someday. But this is the first time I've hit play on that old tape cassette for this podcast. Okay, so I guess the first thing to do is to talk about what would you like to walk away from here with besides a million dollars, which you're not going to get? Maybe a little direction. Okay. Um, Well, I don't know. I'm able to give some advice, I hope. Um, I don't find your job, I'm not a shrink, I'm not any of those things. But I've done this for a long time, and I enjoy doing it, and I enjoy helping people, so that's why I do it. Emira was a pioneer in the field of lighting design. You know, like figuring out how to bring life to the screen and stage. He lit Ray Charles, the Bolshoi Ballet, Epcot, even a couple of presidents. He was incredible, and lighting had been his spark ever since he was a kid. But in high school, he had an accident that blinded him in one eye. As he lay in the hospital, he figured it was the end of his dreams. But then, his mentor came to visit. From his hospital bed, Imero said, You always said I'd be the best lighting designer ever. How can I do that now? 
She said, you know what? We're going to change that. You'll be the best one-eyed lighting designer ever. And I squeezed her hand and I said, you know, I can do that. And I set out to do that. And I did it. Obstacles, no obstacles. But what you need, support. And don't even think for a minute that you can do it by yourself. Because you can't do it alone. This conversation was one of those moments where I got exactly the medicine I needed at that moment in my life. It lit my spark again. If you could be anything that you want to be, Aladdin's lamp, the genie came out and granted you a wish. You'd be anything you want to be. Forget peer pressure, forget money, forget how difficult it is. What would it be? It would be a successful actor on, on stage. Tell me why. Why does acting intrigue you so much? Uh, there's nothing like the feeling of being able to play with people's emotions. You know, it's, uh. it's a power that, you know, not everyone can do. People say I can do that, but they can't. And I love it, you know. I love jumping out of my skin and going, becoming someone else, which is what it is. It's become a passion for me, you know. All around, I could consume my whole life with that and be completely content. You know, I'm not not to act because I want to be a millionaire. Just enough to pay my rent and, you know, put food on my table. Imero doesn't even say that much in this conversation. But he listened. And he asked me questions. Imero created and gave me the space I needed to know that my dream was enough that I was enough, that I belong. I gotta say, listening back to this conversation, I really can hear how much love I had for acting. But I can also hear a kid who's still a bit naive. Back then I said I loved acting because I could play with people's emotions. That is not how I look at it now. Now it is about creating spaces where people can feel their emotions. Spaces where people can feel seen and safe to explore their emotions, whether it's acting on a stage, in front of a camera, or even talking to y'all in this podcast, my creative goal is to give people what Emiro gave me when I was 18. The feeling that you belong. The feeling that you are enough. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Art, belonging, and enoughness, and how the story of a Dominican playboy diplomat became a part of it all. I'm Christopher Rivas, and this is Rubirosa, Episode 8, The Play. Save big money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I was about, I guess, eight years old, and I used to love to go to family barbecues at Flushing Meadow Park, where about 50 or 60 of my cousins would get together, (laughs) barbecuing on one hibachi. Any of y'all know what this is? Ooh, I really hope you do. I really do. This is John Leguizamo and his one-man show, Freak. I saw this beautiful masterpiece on Broadway when I was just a kid, and it dumped a pile of dry kindling on my spark, y'all. It set me ablaze. And yo, yo, we would play that salsa music so damn loud that it would interfere with Nassau communications. (laughs) I watched John Leguizamo, a Colombian kid who grew up in Jackson Heights, Queens, just like my mama. I watched him in a packed theater, salsa dance, fall, and tell the truth. He was confused, he was afraid, he was horny, excited, anxious. Most of all, he was himself. On Broadway, in front of a lot of rich white folks, it felt like he wrote me a permission slip that night. From John Leguizamo to Christopher Rivas. Hey man, you can do this too. You, Christopher Rivas, brown kid from Queens, can get on any stage you want, stand in front of 500 people, and make them feel your pain. Laugh with your joy. See you. I went home, I hopped in the shower, and I started dreaming of a life where I had my own one-man show. I took that dream with me to high school, uh, to Miami where it lay dormant while I was a trainer, to Miero's office as a lost kid, and after that, I carried that dream to an acting conservatory in Los Angeles, CalArts, where I took a playwriting class taught by my friend, Peter Partial Jensen. Can I ask you, uh, what was I like back in college? What do you remember about me? Um, Wapo. Y'all remember Peter from episode one? He's the guy who sent me the Vanity Fair article about Ruby because he saw a resemblance. Like that was one of my first impressions of you. Was like, hey, Wapo. Like what? A, you know, he's like a like not just not just being handsome, but like the 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 ladies fawned over you. You know, <laughs> you were one of my best students in that class. You know, in terms of following through and being hungry to keep searching, to keep developing, to keep growing. You weren't afraid to mess up. Peter's class about playwriting was the first place where I realized I could actually, like, write a play. A one-man show like Freak. I could be in it, and I could write it. But I wasn't sure what my play would be about. Then... Peter sent me the article, and I met Ruby, a fellow Dominican who tried so damn hard to belong. I felt connected to him, because I wanted that too. We all want to belong. I think you might know where all this is going. The place it all started. The stage. I'm eight years old, and I'm going to be an assassin. Which is a weird thing to want to be as a kid, I get that. But that was my chosen profession. I would play like this for hours. I wrote my play 
It's called The Real James Bond Was Dominican. And what you're hearing now are clips from the play today, from a performance at USC Visions and Voices in March 2022. I was the king of make-believe, y'all. The king of fantasy and pretend. I chose Ruby. And I I mean, I would go so far as to say is like the spirit of Ruby Rosa also chose you. Not long after Peter's class, I graduated from CalArts. And then I became what a lot of folks who graduate from an arts conservatory become. A struggling artist with student debt. An actor living in my car. Living off food stamps. Desperate to prove I belonged. That whole time, I thought about Ruby. I wanted to tell his story. Tell my story. I practiced my wink for a minute because y'all know a bad wink is just like... But a good wink is. The play hasn't always been as polished as what you're hearing. For years, it was fragments of writing on my laptop. A scene here, a reflection there. In one version, I wrote the whole thing with me playing Ruby. Nothing about my own life. I even had a scene where Ruby talked to a therapist on stage. So yeah, it has been through a lot of revisions. Do you remember that I... I invited you to a reading of the first draft in like 2014 at that old apartment I had on Marathon, like above Squirrel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you, it was a shitty play. And I think you didn't tell me that, but you, know, you, were, <laughs> you probably had much nicer thoughts. Well, constructive. Yeah. Well, instead of saying, well, this sucks, it's you know, more like, well, it's in development, you know, because the only way to do it is to read it out loud and see what happens, see what people's responses are. In the 10 years I've been working on the show, I have done more writes and rewrites than I can count. And that's because from the very start, I have been digging into some of the most uncomfortable questions of my own life. Like, why am I so afraid of being alone and forgotten? Why did I date so many white women? Where does my self-hate come from? Most of all, What would my life have been like if one of my childhood heroes, James Bond, had looked like me, shared my nose, my skin, my hair? Wrestling with these questions meant finding a way to bring my experiences onto the stage. When I was a kid, nine, ten years old, my grandmother told me to do this to my nose. Grab it between forefinger and thumb, pinch and pull forward. Or... She suggested to my pops that I sleep with a clothespin pinched to my nose, like they do it back in the campo. Can you imagine what that would feel like? And obviously, if you keep performing it, that means that it's working. So, in uh, your words, it went, you know, went from being shitty to being performed all over the country. We've put the play on in theaters from Rochester to Houston to Miami to New York City to L.A. And it feels so amazing to do what I love to do. To be achieving that dream that six-year-old me and sixth-grade me and 18-year-old me shared. But just like Emiro told me, I definitely couldn't have done it alone. So here, here you were bringing me something that was not just the mission of my organization, but really what's become my life mission, which is to create spaces of belonging for people like me who don't have access to that many spaces of belonging. Meet my friend Daniel Banks co-founder of DNA Works, an arts in service organization dedicated to dialogue and healing through the arts. 
What is your role in the play? Uh, I don't know, Chris. What is my role in the play? <laughs> um, I feel like many roles, but we all have many roles. Um, it's, I mean, even though it's a text-based piece, we, we kind of devised it. So it means everybody who has been in the room with us had a hand in co-creating it. Hmm. That's anyhow how I look at it. Daniel's being modest here. So I will just tell you, he's the one who carefully and beautifully shaped my hundreds of pages of writing into what it is. He was the sharp scalpel cutting away what wasn't needed, helping me focus on the questions and moments from my own life that came alive on stage. Why did you say yes to developing it? Like when I first brought you Ruby's story, did it strike a chord with you? I just remember the first time I read the opening of the piece about you in your underwear as a kid, like running out on stage saying, I'm going to be an assassin with all of your toy guns. I mean, that is just like an epic moment. And I just loved the lightness that it, that it began with, you know, and that, 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 that was going to welcome people. in. I think anyone from any background would, would just be immediately lean into this young boy. Right. I mean, I legit thought I was Spider-Man until I was like 10 years old, mainly because we're both nerds from Queens, but also I'm a realist. And I don't have lasers coming out of my eyes or uh, spikes made of metal coming out of my hands anytime soon. And then you start to talk about your journey as an Afro-Dominican young man from Queens. And those places where the language of identity that we use in this country fails us. Those places where we don't have enough role models or leaders who have helped to change the cultural and national imaginary. Like I took in a deep breath one day, looked to my right and thought, oh my God, I don't think I could date a white woman anymore. (laughs) It's not their white parents whose daughters I've been dating for six months and they still think I'm from Puerto Rico. Y'all, I ain't never even been in Puerto Rico. Every time I have to fill out a census form or any job form or, you know, a grant obligation, something, you have to check off these boxes that are completely you know, don't always work for people like you and me. So that's what drew me into it was, yeah, I mean, it was personal. The more I share the play, the more I perform it, the more I realize that the play is not just about Ruby and it's definitely not just about me. Other people see their lives or some part of their experience in this play and in this podcast. You hear that, Ruby? Your story. It is a part of something magical, something powerful. Your story, it's bringing people together. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. 
The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Once after a performance in New York City, a young Middle Eastern kid came up to me after the show. He was a theater student. He said he always thought he needed epic stories starring heroes that looked like us. But after seeing the real James Bond was Dominican, he realized what he needed was normal, beautiful brownness. Just us being us. And then he said, thank you for being you. At its best, I think art creates disruption. It reveals things to us that we didn't even know we needed to see. My director, Daniel Banks, has a tool that helps this happen. We turn the lights down on the stage and up on the audience. It's called a story circle, and we do them with every performance we can. I figured it was kind of hard to talk about story circles without bringing you into one. So what you're hearing right now is the gentle chatter from an actual circle. We want to know what this play inspired and reminded you and revealed about your own life, or made you question about your own life. I'm at a venue called Culture Hub in New York City. We just finished the play, and there's a small audience who have all agreed to be recorded for this podcast. Here we go. We first break people off into um, pairs so that they kind of have a warm-up of listening to one another. And I'm going to assign you an A and a B. And... When A is speaking, B will listen. And this isn't listening in the way where you're like, yeah, I'm listening. Like, this because while, while an audience uh, doesn't necessarily have difficulty listening to a performer, sometimes they have uh, difficulty listening to a neighbor or a relative or a spouse. You know, these patterns get ingrained. And if we can come together now, it would be amazing if now we could uh, sh- share this with everyone, like maybe a story you shared with your partner. And then we, we ask people to share their own individual stories out and, and very specifically not to share their partner's story. Most of the time, Daniel leads the story circles and I just listen. It is such a cool feeling to hear the audience members talk about what resonated with them or what the play made them think about. It's like I get to be in the backseat of someone's car as they drive home from the theater and discuss it with their partner. Partner, you can... Share one of their reflections or something you didn't share yet that it's just sort of coming I'll, I'll to you. Um, for me, the it was really personal. Um, I am Dominican American, first gen- generation, um, from Washington Heights, actually the Heights. <laughs> Shout out. This is a woman named Judy. She's seen the show three times. Hysterical, but always pierces my heart because um, I see my father, I see my uncle, I see my brother. 
I see my grandfather. I've had like a lot of complicated, tortured relationships with with all these men in my family. And seeing this show has just like softened my heart and expanded my compassion because this idea of not being like having to pretend because you don't there's no place where you can see yourself um and then like what are you imitating and at least for my dad and my grandparents growing up in the dictatorship of the Dominican Republic like they're imitating these like toxic masculine figures I've seen John Leguizamo's show Freak at least 15 times because of how much it pierces my heart. How much it speaks to me and shows me my brown self and my family. When creating the play, I thought a lot about whether to include my own experiences. How critical could I actually be of my parents and grandparents in front of other people? How do I be honest and create empathy at the same time? So, to hear Judy engaging with all of this, coming back three times... It's powerful, and it's humbling. I find it interesting the people who come back to speak at the story circle. Like, sure, yeah, I'm sure they're going to see the play again, and that's great, and I appreciate that. But they're definitely coming back because, like, it, it feels like a space that they can actually say something they've never said out loud. As the woman in Dallas said, you know, the, the elder who, who came back a couple times to see the show, she stood up and she said, I, this is my third time seeing the show. And, you know, I really, really like the show, but I, I came back for the story circle because I'm learning more about my community and my neighborhood and, you know, the people in my city and humanity. Every time I come back, I learn more. Like I think of some of the comments that we had where like one person literally said, I've never thought about this group of people before or people like this and I can't believe how blind I've been and I want to be a better person it was that succinct and it was that direct I think that's the magic of the piece is that it takes people on an internal journey as much as it takes them on an external journey I love the moments when everyone is like especially with the nose stuff Mm-hmm. So many people are constantly like, oh, yeah, my, my dad told me to do that to my nose or my mom told me to do that. or My grandma told me to, you know, pinch my nose or like, like how constant that is. I remember the woman who said, um, I've never said this out loud. She came twice and she only spoke at the second story circle. And she said, I used to spend hours in the mirror practicing how to smile white, you know, like tucking in my lips, trying to smile white. But it's not just other Afro-Latinos or Dominicans or Latinos who come and talk out loud with their shared experiences. At one performance in Dallas, a 60-something-year-old white man said that after I performed the scene about pinching my nose with a clothespin, he couldn't stop thinking about this image and he missed the next two scenes altogether. He said that for the first time in his life, he could feel what it was like to be someone else. He could feel his privilege. Not just think about it or read about it. No, he could feel it. Uh, it's been really fascinating here in, in Dallas-Fort Worth area. I mean, we've had audiences where more than one person has stood up and kind of self-outed themselves as coming from a family that owned enslaved workers, enslaved Africans, um, in the same audience as people who had African heritage, people who had family members um, killed in racial violence incidents, telling those stories. 
Um, so I guess I'm one of the few people who are not particularly thrilled by the wave of identity politics that is going on around, you know. Uh, I'm more interested in... Sometimes, uh, though, people push back in the story circle. I love this part. Like this guy named Hirsch, a filmmaker in New York. He said he thought the play made it seem like we're putting too much emphasis on Hollywood as a place to find representation. There is a lot of media... There is a lot of different kinds of films, theater, music. What we can decide is where to look. Why not see uh, non-mainstream films, which are actually representing you or uh, your culture? Why do we ignore them? And why do we make a case for like you know big budget films, which are obviously, uh, in a way, they are products. You know, we know that those are products. So why do we have to see a reflection in the products? I love the point Hirsch is making here. And I agree with him. Yes, we do have to look for things that speak to us wherever we can, especially when they don't exist in the mainstream. We got to go see art exhibits and indie films. Hey, maybe even show up for a one-man show about a Dominican playboy. We got to find those little threads where we do feel seen where we do feel like we are enough and we have to weave them together until we have something solid and beautiful that can hold us. What people say um, in the story circles give, gives me hope and, and, and that is healing. I think hope, hope is healing. Near the end of my play, there's a line where I say, proudly in my own brown skin. And back when we were rehearsing, that line jumped out to Daniel. And I said that line, and you said, I just can't hear it. Like, I can't hear it. And you say it again. And I said, you say, I can't hear it. And I don't know. Like, you're saying it, but I don't hear it. So I say it again, and I said it again. You said, you know, you, you got to sing it. You got to sing it like India Ari, like brown skin. Like, and then you <laughs> sang it, and every, you sing beautifully, and just so everyone knows. And do you remember that moment? Yeah. So, like, when you think about acting teachers, and especially in poetic texts, who will say, like you have to earn every word. Tina Packer at Shakespeare and Company does this process called dropping in, where you literally go through every major word in, a, in every single sentence of a play and preparing the play. And you have somebody whispering like questions and prompts in your ears to make you think differently about that word each time. And you'd say each word, I don't know, five, 10, depending on who's, who's who your guide is, you know, 20 times you're like, until you find that word somewhere in your body and then they move on to the, you know, the next word in the sentence. Um, and I, I love that image of, of dropping in, like that the language has to drop into you in order to actually resonate for your listener. Proudly in my own brown skin, in order for this line to drop into me, I started thinking about freak. And the first time I saw it, I thought about John Leguizamo up on that stage being weird, being brown, being himself. I thought about Imero, about chasing his own dream, about him talking to me like, of course I could be an actor. All I had to do was go for it. I thought about Peter sending me that Ruby article, how he saw a bit of me in the image of this man who dazzled the world. I thought about the dark and beautiful history of the Dominican Republic the history of my ancestors in the DR, the story of my mom and pops on a subway platform in New York City deciding to turn nothing into something. 
the eight-year-old kid trying to be Bond. All of this, and all of these people, they were moving around in that one line. No more pretending, right, Ruby? And proudly, in my own brown skin, I will make sure that the dedication reads, in loving memory of Porfirio Rubirosa, a brave, foolish, loving, tortured, brown-skinned man who was desperate to be seen. I have one more question. What have you learned about yourself in this process doing this show that you don't talk about in the show? I I think we do talk about it, but it, it would take up a whole play, you know, is I'm still coming to understand, this is like my whole life, my relationship between loneliness and being seen. Which is why I think Ruby was so sad at times and so lonely. Like he needed to be seen so much. Like he he made no room to to to, to be alone. I'm still thinking and still learning. What is it about being seen? And every human wants to be seen. I think, and we want to be like recognized for who we are, right? Proudly in my own brown skin. And we want to not have to prove it to people. And and I know I still have a chip on my shoulder. Like, I know I still have so much to prove. To who, though? I'm like, who am I doing it for? Like, who who's out there like, fuck Chris, he's not going to make it. Like, I'm still answering that, but I've come closer to it. Y'all, this journey, this story is not over. And I want to know what you think. You, listening to this right now, we're going to turn this podcast into a kind of story circle. So please, send me your thoughts, your questions, your reflections. You can email rubirosa at stitcher.com with voice memos, written notes, anything you want to share, one and everything, bring it all. Or find me on social at Christopher double underscore Rivas. I can't wait to hear it. We've only got two episodes of this podcast left. Next time, we're going to hear about Ruby's death and what still haunts me about it. He was such a chosen and deliberate man that there's a real good chance it wasn't an accident that night with the car. I wouldn't put it past him, but, you know, we'll never know. And then we'll go back to the one place that in all my years of researching and learning, I still hadn't been to. The one place that maybe has some answers for me. Stick around. Rubirosa is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher. It's created by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Yay for me. 
Abigail Keel is our magical senior producer. She's the best. Kevin Tidmarsh is our producer. He's the second best. Our story editor is John Delore. You get the picture here. Our technical director is Casey Holford, also great. Camille Stanley is the executive producer of Witness Docs. Readings of Ruby's memoir are performed by Victor Almansar. Workhouse Media Inc. is also a contributing producer to this podcast, as are executive producers Amelia Baker, Mackenzie Monroe, and Ari Anderson. Original music for this podcast is composed and beautifully performed by Wilson Torres, Jason Villamar, and Marcos Varela. Our theme song is composed by Allison Layton Brown. And a special thanks to Culture Hub in New York City, especially Maddie Barbara Bockelman and DeAndra Anthony. And a huge thanks to USC Visions and Voices for hosting and recording a performance of The Real James Bond was Dominican in March 2022. And to Daniel Banks at DNA Works for talking with us about the story circle. We want to hear from y'all. Email rubirosa at stitcher.com right now. Send us your stories, your questions, jokes, and all the rest. Don't forget to subscribe to this show and share it with everyone you love. Hell, share it with the people you don't love. Thanks, y'all. Peace. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.